Hey, everybody, before we get started, I just want to encourage everyone here, watch the Select Committee on January 6th hearings. I think it is an important historical record of one of the worst days in our country's history. And I think it's important that you are able to see for yourselves just what happened on that day, who was responsible, and that you can share that information with your friends and your family and your colleagues when they say none of it matters. Every bit of it matters. I hope you'll tune in. I hope you'll find all of our content, ask us questions. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm excited to welcome back Nick Carmody, psychotherapist, lawyer, and executive board member of the World Mental Health Coalition. As documented in his first appearance on the podcast last year, Nick is the survivor of not one, but two traumatic brain injuries, and it was the resulting changes he experienced and the need to understand these changes that motivated him to go back to school and work in the psychology field. In addition to his work in psychotherapy, he's written extensively on the psychology of Donald Trump, how the GOP transformed into the party of Donald Trump, as well as into the mind of dictators. Today, he's coming to us from Denver, Colorado, where he maintains his private practice. Nick, welcome back. Hi, Reed. Thank you for having me. So today I want to talk about some of the revelations from the January 6th hearings, as well as your outlook for what the future of our country holds. But before that, I want to talk about how the cult of Donald Trump and the GOP is evolving. So you've written extensively on Donald Trump and his hold on the Republican Party, but I would say that the movement is evolving. And what I mean by that is what we see politically, there are three separate silos within the Republican Party now. There's the sort of 25 to 30 percent rump what I would call establishment Republicans like I used to be. Then there's the 35 or 40 percent of people who are like the true Trumpies, right? They'll ride or die with Donald Trump. And then there's this new wing, the ultra MAGA, as President Biden called it, that I believe has moved past Trump. He opened the door for them, but they're now running across the countryside. So I want to get your sense of how you see it, not from a political perspective, but uh, from a psychological and a psychotherapy perspective as you're watching these things happen in real time. I think it's kind of evolved from a cult of personality to a cult of tribe. And that seems to be kind of a more common through line through everything. I wrote something back in October of last year about how the cult of personality was kind of evolving from Trump to Steve Bannon. And, you know, I think at this point, Trump is, he's more of an abstraction. He's more of an abstract idea. He's a symbol of martyrdom. He's a rallying cry, but their true allegiance is to Bannon and to other leaders of the ultra MAGA. Maybe Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson, for sure. I've written a lot about Tucker Carlson over the years because, you know, we've seen uh, instances with Trump with the vaccines is, you know, they're willing to peel off from him if he's not Trumpy enough for them. So, you know, at this point, you know, he's almost like a mascot. You could take Trump out of the picture and the movement doesn't stop. You know, he's still a threat as a president because he would be an exacerbation of the situation. But if he's not there, you know, you can neutralize Trump and it doesn't you know, take away the, the threat to society or the threat to democracy. That's a sort of an interesting evolution. That's an interesting pivot, maybe, because we could make an argument, Nick, that this sort of gurgling under the surface that Trump unleashed needed an embodiment. It needed that physical form, which Donald Trump provided. But what you're saying is that they have their own individual and collective initiative now. Is he old-fashioned? Is he sort of MAGA 1.0? 
Well, one of the things we often see in sociology or social psychology is it's referred to as a ratchet effect, right? It's like a, a ratchet, right? You can go in one direction. It doesn't go backwards. It only goes one direction. And what we're seeing in politics is there's a, a ratchet effect with the extremism, with the radicalization where, you know, it's kind of going in one direction and you can turn the ratchet backwards, but it doesn't catch. It doesn't click. It doesn't turn it. And we're just kind of see everything just seems to be evolving or, or maybe devolving and accelerating in a more extreme, more dangerous direction. And to the extent that, you know, the leader is part of that or is leading that. And then oftentimes Trump leads from behind. And the minute that they're no longer leading, they will discard that leader and find somebody who's, you know, as extreme as they want, whether that's Bannon, whether that's Carlson, Mastriani, or, you know, in Pennsylvania or, or anybody else who's willing to step up, or maybe it's even like the Dryton's video. You know, everybody's angling to be as extreme and as inflammatory and as unstable as possible. I mean, the one thing that we have seen about Trump, as I like to say, you wouldn't ask Donald Trump to do your algebra homework, but he does have a unique intelligence when it comes to his people. Do you believe that he senses the movement that's going on, that it is moving past him? And do you believe that he will move to catch up with it and or meet it? so that he remains at the forefront as opposed to being left behind? Well, he often leads from behind. I mean, he senses what his people want, and you know, he very much has his finger on the pulse of grievances and resentment, and so there just tends to be a natural symbiosis with that. But it will be interesting to see you know, how he handles that. You know, there's nothing that will hold him back. There's no morality. There's nothing that will restrain him, so you know, it won't be surprising to see him go as far as he thinks he needs to go. But it's interesting to see, you know, to, if he's as inherently radical as some of the people that we're seeing, you know, like with Greitens doing the stuff he does, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, there seems to be people who are maybe more unstable or more, maybe more violent than Trump. I mean, Trump obviously will, is willing to embrace some violence, um, but the violence usually seems to be in service of his narcissism. Any violence that, you know, that he embraces, like we saw on January 6th, you know, was he enjoying that? Absolutely, he was enjoying that. You know, civil unrest, when perceived to be inspired by tribal loyalty or cult membership allegiance, is one of the greatest sources of narcissistic supply. So was he enjoying that for 187 minutes? Absolutely he was. He was enjoying it because it was serving his narcissism. So Nick, now the tables are turning on him as he sits in the bridal suite in Mar-a-Lago. He has, and I'm sure he's watching these, right, because he's a TV addict. He's worse than Jim Carrey and the cable guy when it comes to television. Do you believe that how many people he's seen turn on him, including, you know, his daughter and Kushner, at least in the context of that particular deposition where they were trying to clearly save themselves, what do you think that's done to his narcissistic personality? Because the thing that we've recognized is that when reality has intruded on him, that's when he reacts the worst. Well, often what he does is sometimes he will, we saw this when he was getting booed at, I think it was Madison Square Garden when there was an MMA fight. I think it was a World Series game in DC. You know, sometimes what he will do is he'll kind of uh, disappear or get quiet for a few days and he'll create an alternate reality that still is in alignment with his narcissism or with the way that he needs to perceive the world. And so for, you know, oftentimes with narcissists, what happens is when their alternate reality is pierced by somebody in their life, similar to like maybe an intervention for a drug addict, they will discard that person and they will just keep bringing somebody else into their life that will facilitate or perpetuate that alternate reality. 
And so we saw him do that with the hearings recently with Jeffrey Clark. I mean, he will just keep, you know, removing people until he can bring somebody in who will either agree with the alternate reality or help him to create that alternate reality. And so, you know, will there be some discarding of his inner circle? You know, it'd be interesting to see how he handles that with family. But narcissists often see their children as extensions of themselves, you know, their ego accessories. And, you know, to the extent that they're no longer playing that role, that they often discard them. You know, it'd be interesting to see what he does with Ivanka because that's a very unique relationship. Unique is a polite way to put it. But your point is the right one, which she has always been the favorite. And not by a little, but by a lot. Whereas the rest of them, you can tell he either loathes them or he ignores them altogether. Well, and they've also never been in a position where self-preservation pitted them against each other. So, you know, this is a, an interesting thought experiment to see how this plays out with, you know, with two people who, who definitely present with cluster B personality disorders. And what is that that you just mentioned? So cluster B personality disorders, it's a, a group of personality disorders with borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder, which is commonly known as sociopathy or psychopathy. So let me ask you this. Do narcissists draw these people to them? Because he seems to be able to find people who are willing to put up with that sort of behavior, who are jazzed up by that kind of behavior, or are too stupid to know what that behavior will ultimately lead to. Well, I think it's a combination of all of the above and probably to varying degrees, various combinations. I think for some, obviously, there's the draw to power, the ambition that being around power provides for other people. You know, they may share the pathology, you know, they may share the narcissism, they may share, you know, somebody like Stephen Miller, you know, the sadism. He definitely comes across as a more sadistic person than even Trump does. Disordered people will gravitate towards disordered people. Talking about Miller and the sadism, and you talk about Eric Greitens in Missouri, who's a disgraced governor. He claims to be a Navy SEAL, but if you ask anyone who served on a team in the Navy SEAL community, they don't claim him. They think he's an abomination. But, you know, Nick, he's a good example of one where he ran this ad. You know, he's holding a shotgun. He said, I'm going to go rhino hunting. He has all these guys in battle rattle. They burst open a door, you know, smoke bombs, all this other stuff. I'm going to give you a rhino, you know, hunting license, no bagging limit, no tagging limit violence from the first second to the last, but also this is a guy who had to leave office because he tied up his girlfriend in the basement, took pictures of her, threatened to release them if she said anything. Also, his now ex-wife claims that he abused her and their children. So this seems to be a, a guy who is expressing his disorders to the world on a daily basis. Yeah, at the very least, it seems to be very unstable. You know, one of the things that we're seeing with politics right now is that, you know, it's reached a point where people no longer enter politics to fight for ideology or specific issues. Instead, it's reached a point where people enter politics simply to fight. And the political arena is that theater of war. And so, you know, when the objective or the purpose of politics becomes the fight, it will inevitably attract people who are conflict oriented and people who derive purpose and meaning from fighting and who receive narcissistic supply from conflict and people who are inexhaustibly conflict driven. To your point about the fighting and the sadism, is that a core component, sort of what we see from the Republican Party and this whole idea of owning the libs, right? They want to see the freak out. They want to see the outrage. It fills them with joy. It fuels that desire to push boundaries further and further away, you know, outside the mainstream. And then you get to a place where, again, violence is a real component of American politics today, whether you want to believe it or not. We saw that in Buffalo 
We've seen that now in staggering detail with the January 6th hearings. We're seeing that with Greitens. We're seeing it with Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert, all of them. These guys in the back of a U-Haul truck in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, right? It just seems that now that we have surpassed some otherwise invisible barrier where now maybe it started with January 6th, maybe it started with Donald Trump, but political violence is becoming more and more mainstream. You know, once that happens, as a friend of mine once said, it's very difficult to get out. You know, I've written a lot about fear and Tucker Carlson. There was that New York Times, Nick Confessori piece about Carlson. And that was stuff I've been writing about for years with him. Carlson's had a, a line that I've used repeatedly that I heard years ago where, you know, he says, when they come for you and they will. And so when people become fearful enough, even decent people, when they become scared, when they become fearful, when they feel like they have to self-preserve, they will start to engage in ways that mimics inhumanity, that, that mimics disordered behavior, the survival instinct. You know, even in our society, we grant victims special rights, right? You can kill somebody. If society deems you to be a victim, we give you the right to murder somebody. And so one of the reasons why the sense of victimhood is used is because it creates the sense of moral authority to act in ways that society normally would not allow you to act. There's a phrase that I use where I, I call it preemptive retaliation. The victim is viewed as having this justification to preemptively act in retaliation for the outgroup doing something against them or intending to do something against them. And with this fear thing, when people become scared, right, it eventually turns to hate and it turns to anger. When we are angry at somebody and when we demonize other people, it becomes much easier to do inhumane things to those people, to commit violence against them if we view them as being immoral people. And so, you know, this psychological operation that is, that is basically being you know, conducted on the country is really warping people's emotions. It's triggering them. It's causing them to perceive people in the most uh, negative way possible. And it's causing them to react in the most violent way possible. The way that you describe that, the preemptive retaliation, fits to a T a, a guy like Kyle Rittenhouse. Crossed a state line, shot three people, killed two of them. Now he goes on Tucker Carlson. What does that do? One, it owns the libs. Two, it reminds people that either subtly or not, that violence in the continuance or belief in your way of life is okay. And three, to your point, this all happened, Nick, and now I'm never going to have a normal life. I'm never going to be able to go to college. I'm never going to be able to have a regular job. When the reality is, if the kid's mom had just said, no, Kyle, you're going to go back to your room, two people would be alive. A third would not have a scar or whatever damage has occurred to them, and he might have the life he wanted. But now he's the victim because, Nick, he was standing up for, quote, our way of life against the outgroup, against those people. Yeah, not only that, but he's been valorized. You know, now he's a martyr and, and he's a hero. And if you're somebody who feels like you have no purpose and no meaning in your life and you see this guy being lionized and valorized for what he did, we do have a problem with copycat crimes in this country. Hey, I would like to meet the president. I'd like to be in Mar-a-Lago. I'd like to be on Tucker Carlson's show. That was the avenue he got there. And so it creates an incentive structure or permission structure for people to think that that's an opportunity to follow in those footsteps. As far as the, the owning the libs, you know, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about purpose and meaning. And one of the guys, you know, that I wrote about, I think his name is Jared Boyce. He was living with his mom at the time. And, you know, this Patriot Front, which is the masked khaki mafia 
that shows up at this. And I think you had a great line about these the same guys who wouldn't wear masks for COVID, but they're all masked up, you know, as they're U-hauling over to a pride event in Idaho, I think it was. But, you know, these guys are trying to find purpose and meaning, you know, in saving kids. But, you know, you don't see this khaki mafia rolling up to the headquarters of the NRA or gun manufacturing plants where kids are dying. You know, they're only showing up to pride events. What we have in this country is we have this misplaced emphasis on purpose and meaning. And in this case, you know, whether it's Pizzagate or book bans or banning CRT from schools or whether it's DeSantis and Disney, mask mandates, everything is framed around we're saving kids. And when we're when the, the issue is framed around saving kids, that's such a noble endeavor that any means that brings about those ends is justified because how can you argue against saving kids? And for a lot of these guys, if you want to find purpose and meaning in saving kids, go sign up and be a coach, you know, be a big brother, a big sister, you know, volunteer, do something like that where you're, you're helping and lifting people up. You know, in this country, we need to find purpose and meaning from building people up, from lifting people up, because often in times in life is that one of the best ways to pull yourself out of a bad or a dark place in your life is by helping somebody else to do the same. But too often, we're looking to try to elevate ourselves and create purpose and meaning in our life by tearing somebody else down. You know, I want to stay on the, the whole idea of the kids thing. During one of the January 6th hearings recently, the gentleman who's the speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, Rusty Bowers, he was one of the people who talked to Rudy Giuliani, talked to Donald Trump, said, I can't call people into a special session. And even if I could, like you guys have not provided me any sort of evidence that this is something that I can or would do. In response to that, he said that every Saturday now, you know, they roll up outside his house, bullhorns, you know, screaming big truck that says, you know, Rusty Bowers is a pedophile. And so, you know, there's this personalization of violence too, but I want to stay with Bowers for a second. So one, this also takes a guy like Bowers, who's older gentleman, very devout Mormon LDS faith. You know, when he talked about Ronald Reagan, you know, he probably did come up in a time when Ronald Reagan was the Republican and conservative icon, not only in in the United States, but probably around the world. However people feel about him now, he was a beacon of democracy. But so now you see this guy being harassed by these folks every Saturday, you know, at his home. But Nick, here's my question. This is the same guy who stood up when he needed to stand up. But then when asked, would you vote for Donald Trump in 2024? He said, if Donald Trump runs against Joe Biden, yes, I'll vote for him. Like, what kind of psychology is that? Yeah, it was interesting. I was watching the, the replay of that last night and, you know, he was so compelling and so sincere in his oath and the fact that, you know, he believed the Constitution is ordained by God, right? And yet he's willing to vote for a guy who was going to undermine something that was ordained by God. And earlier, you know, what I mentioned is that, you know, it's no longer a cult of Trump. You know, it's a cult of tribe. It's about preserving the tribe you know, at all costs. And I think part of that is the demonization of the outgroup of the Democrats of the left to where they view that the left is so bad and so dangerous that they're willing to vote for a guy that literally is undermining a human construct, a political construct that was set in motion by their deity. It's mind numbing to try to wrap your mind around how they arrive at that point. As I was talking to, you know, Robert, your producer before, you know, in a way, when he said that, I was thinking about it and it was like, well, you know, maybe that adds credibility because Trump voters who might be watching this, I know it's only like one in five are actually watching, but the Trump voters who are watching it, you know, maybe they're like, hey, this guy's, you know, he would still vote for Trump. So he's not a rhino. 
and maybe that gives him more credibility for what he's saying. But what it also does now is it gives these Trump voters a permission structure to vote for Trump again. And so if the objective is to put these hearings on to not elect Trump again, but then you're saying that you yourself would vote for him and said, well, if this guy would still vote for him, then why the hell can't I? It just seems to be really counterproductive. This is one of those weird things, right? Because the moment that Speaker Bowers denied Donald Trump what he wanted, he'd made his bed. The moment that he chose to testify before the January 6th commission publicly, be deposed, give them documents, give them evidence, he'd not only made his bed, he got in it and gone to sleep. But now he's like, oh, but I'd still vote for Trump again. Like, it doesn't matter. It's too late. I guess my point is, Nick, is that so many of them seem to be willing to cross the line and then be like, oh, but I still want what I want. So I'll say what I need to say to somehow try and be salvageable to these people. It doesn't make any sense to me, but maybe it's because I left a long time ago. Yeah, I think for some of them, that's the case. I mean, maybe like, you know, you see people like Haley, Nikki Haley jumping back and forth and it's they clearly don't understand the purity test aspect of, of the tribalism. But I think for a guy like Bowers, I mean, he seems to be an extremely principled guy and it doesn't seem like he was voting for Trump to salvage his career. It just seems like there's just that cognitive hangup where despite what happens, you know, whether it's the identity aspect of, you know, he looked like he might be in the 70s, you know, 50 years of identity that, you know, merges with your ideology and your political party. But he didn't seem like somebody who was, you know, putting his finger in the wind and making calculations. It just seemed like he was incapable of voting for anybody but the head of the party. So this is the weird dichotomy that you've raised, Nick. And I think it's one worth exploring a little bit more. The rank and file see Trump as a statue almost, right? A symbol. But one that, again, they give a salute to as they walk by, but they're walking by. But the establishment, and when I say establishment, I mean the elected officials, still fear him more than they fear anything else politically. And so you've got, you know, even Mitch McConnell, who voted against Trump's second impeachment and then blamed him for it. You've got Kevin McCarthy, who's trying to ride this tiger and it's slipping further and further towards its jaws. You've got all these other people who are scared of him because they're scared of his people. But if they took a look at the movement like you are, the best thing they could do is finally, at long last, say, he's too much trouble. Forget it. Thank you, President Trump, for all you did. But like, it's time for you to go. And would some people flip out? They would. But the truth is, is that it feels like either from an elected official perspective, a leader perspective, or rank and file that people would probably toss him overboard because he's just not worth the trouble anymore. Yeah, I think for a lot of them, it's not just the fear of the ballot box and being primaried. I think for a lot of them, it was the fear of the voters with violence. We saw that with Lindsey Graham last year when he was in the airport. We've recently saw that with Crenshaw. And so I think they've been fearing for their safety. And, you know, they see that Kensinger just got a, a death threat against his wife and five-month-old daughter. So I think for a lot of them, they're literally scared for their safety. And it's going beyond just the fear of being primary. You know, one of the interesting things about all of this is, you know, whether it's political realignment, whether it's the cult of the tribe, whether it's Bannon ascending to lead the cult of personality, is that tens of millions of MAGA people right now are in you know, the exact opposite ideological position that they often were for decades. And one of the ways that I explain it is that you know, for decades, Rush Limbaugh told them to defend and support the establishment, the institutions, big business, and so they did. And now Bannon tells them, 
to tear down everything that they've previously defended and supported. And so they do. And, you know, when you get to that, you often hear them talk about sheeple and being sheep. And that is the epitome of being sheep. Let me ask you this. So you've got the triad, for lack of a better way to put it. You've got Trump, who still has residual authority. You've got Tucker Carlson, who speaks to the faithful every night. And you've got Bannon, who speaks to the ultra mega faithful, you know, for hours a day. He is tuned up all day, every day. And it's interesting because with Tucker, he does it with that sort of like, I'm not saying there's going to be violence, but I'm saying there's going to be violence. Right. But he does it in the you know, he's got the blue blazer on. He's got the tie. He brings, you know, that sort of patrician normalcy. Right. That like we knew the guy win. Right. Like when he was on CNN and he was on Crossfire and he was a what we would call now a rhino. And because he's on Fox, he's got what a lot of Republicans would consider to be an establishment like platform. Bannon, on the other hand, looks like a revolutionary. His hair's out of control. He's always grizzled. He's wearing five T-shirts with a pin and his barber jacket. And he's saying the craziest ass things, right? Tucker says things that are abominable, right? That are awful, that we know why he's saying them. And sometimes he even crosses over into, you know, from dog whistle to bullhorn. But Bannon is all bullhorn all the time. And it's craziness that comes out of his bullhorn. To kind of think about it the way you framed it is that Trump is more like the mascot right now. Carlson is kind of the emotional center of the movement. He's extremely stilled at his use of tone and cadence petulance, snark, sarcasm, victimhood. You know, he simultaneously has his viewers embrace victimhood and then he empowers them with kind of this narcissistic entitlement. And it's all emotion with Carlson, which makes sense because Carlson's, you know, he's a fraud. You know, he's not a tough guy. You know, he just wants to talk shit. But Bannon's different because Bannon is somebody who he also causes an emotional reaction, but he provides a blueprint for action. You know, Tucker just wants to fucking bitch out into the wind. But Bannon has literally what they call activated, you know, tens of millions of people. And we see this with school boards and the voting stuff. And one of the things with Bannon, what we often see with populist leaders is, you know, they talk about freedom and they talk about empowerment, but usually it would end up with less freedom and less power with the people and more with the head of the movement. And, and when you hear Bannon talking about, you know, when we are in power, you know, we're coming for you. And if you notice, it's always this we. He's not an elected official. He's just, you know, he's, like you said, some guy with a bullhorn. And you can tell he's feeling him himself. He's craving that power and that influence. And, you know, it comes down to, as you get into an authoritarian movement, who's got more power? Is it the elected officials or is it somebody with the backing of tens of millions of followers who are all amped up on emotion and looking for revenge? Steve Bannon is an avowed Leninist, as in Vladimir Lenin, not John Lennon. And I'm just reading now Ann Applebaum's epic gulag about the Soviet prison system. And one of the things she reminded us, and Trig V. Olson on our team has said this many times too, is that the first people that Lenin went after when the Bolsheviks took power in 1917 were not the czarists, were not the white guards, but the other socialists who had supported the revolution. He got rid of competition first. And so I guess my question is, as you see this dynamic of populism between Trump, the mascot, Carlson, the emotional leader, and Bannon, the activator slash organizer, they don't really talk about one another very much. They're not seen together. They don't go on one another's shows. They don't invite Trump. How does the movement see them and how do they interact with one another? Because eventually 
they're all going to want to be the top dog. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I never thought about it that way. But I get, my first impression is that they will avoid it as long as they have to because the mirage or the perception of power exists until it's pierced. And a confrontation risks some type of exposure to that. And so, that, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, I guess I could see Carlson fearing Bannon because, you know, Carlson's just talk and Bannon's about action. And Trump is often about talk, right? He's often just the, the appearance, but Bannon's about action. And, you know, from that standpoint, you would think that he would probably instill more fear in the other two than they would him. Well, and you see that, you know, you mentioned Dan Crenshaw, and that was at the Texas Republican Convention, but they did it to Ted Cruz too, which is with Crenshaw, they called him Patch McCain, which is something that Tucker Carlson had called him in regards to Crenshaw's support of Ukraine. And then they did it to Ted Cruz. But with Ted Cruz, they said, why do you care about Ukraine's border more than you care about the U.S.-Mexico border? But then, Nick, they went, and why should we trust you anyway? You supported a guy who insulted your wife. And so they basically called him a rhino globalist cuck. Now, this is Ted Cruz right now. Is Cruz a phony? He absolutely is, right? He's a cynic. He's a charlatan. But now, if we're going to call it, I guess maybe it's the Overton window has moved where Dan Crenshaw, who has a picture of Donald Trump as Abraham Lincoln in his office, and Ted Cruz, who has abased himself before Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson, they're now the rhino globalist cucks. What does that say? Because it seems to me to circle back what we started with, which is the Eric Greitens and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Doug Mastrianos now are the true believers. They're the pure and anybody else is not, is tainted somehow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the purity test of extremism and radicalization. You know, and I guess the equivalent would be, did you get cocaine that was stepped on as only 95% pure or with Cruz or with Crenshaw? Or did you get 100% pure cocaine with somebody like Greitens or Marjorie Terry Lee Green or somebody where there's no rational thought, there's no deliberation, there's no moderation, there's no responsible speaking? and you're rewarded for that. You know, unfortunately, the incentive structures are such that, you know, whether it's financially through Fox News and advertising or being paid by cable companies, whatever it is, but, you know, until the incentive structures change, and right now the incentive structures positively reinforce chaos and disinformation and division, until that changes, these types of people, we're going to see more and more extreme types of people because that's what we're rewarding. So how do the folks that are listening to us right now I have a lot of enormously intelligent and accomplished folks like yourself on. They hear what we're saying. They hear it a lot. But I never want to let folks go without giving some sense of what they can do as an individual American who believes in the rule of law, believes in the Constitution, believes in decency. What can they do on a daily basis to ensure that when this fight is over, whenever that is, you know, if it's November of 2022 or November of 2024 and the dust is settling, they said, I, I did my part. What would you recommend folks out there do? You know, often we hear when somebody's fighting dirty, they'll hear, hey, man, you got to fight dirty, right? You got to give what you get, that type of thing. But engaging and embracing the tactics of the right in order to try to preserve civilization or democracy, it doesn't avoid losing that. It guarantees it. And so I saw something the other day about there's going to be riots if Roe is overturned. You lose all moral authority and the moral high ground on January 6th if the left is rioting because of Roe. 
You know, if you want to channel that type of emotion, you know, you riot at the ballot box, not literally, but you show up. Don't sit around and pout that you're not getting enough student loans erased, you know, so therefore I may not vote. We're all trying to fight for democracy here. We're all trying to save democracy and you can't be petty and petulant and threaten not to show up, but then go out and riot because, you know, the Supreme Court decision didn't show up the way you want. Was there a seat stolen with Garland? Absolutely. But the way that you fix that is by voting. That's how democracy works. Well, amen to that. And, and as a reminder, folks out there, I know most of you haven't signed up because I know the numbers. Remember, you can join us to do this. Join the union.us. You can work in your state, work in your community, figure out how you can participate with local groups, how you can participate with local campaigns, right? You know, I know it's a trope to say that democracy isn't a spectator sport, but it's not. And if you believe it is, then what we see will continue. And I know none of us want that. And I know that we're all going to do our part. Well, with Nick, first and foremost, I want to thank you for coming back. I hope you'll come back again soon. Where can our listeners find you on social media and where can they find your work? So I'm at Nick underscore Carmody, C-A-R-M-O-D-Y on Twitter. And I have a Patreon page that I try to rewrite every thread as a uh, article version. And that is patreon.com slash Nick Carmody. There's no paywall. Everything's free. And that's about it. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen and on Instagram, Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. I'm just trying to do a few more little videos on a regular basis. If you ever have any ideas on things you'd like to hear from, either here on the show or in my little videos, please, you know, comment, send an email to info at lincolnproject.us with the subject line podcast or video, and we'll make sure we take those into account. As always, gang, I want to thank you for joining me. Nick, once again, thanks for coming, and guys, we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.